Welcome to you all this morning. If this is your first time with us, thank you so much for being here at Trinity Church. My name is Tom. I am one of the teaching pastors here. Um, if you did not get a listening guide when you came in, please put your hand up and uh, someone will get you one of those from the back. Uh, here at Trinity, we practice a style of preaching called expository preaching, which is just a big way of saying we want the point of what we say to match the point of what the author of the Bible said. Um, and so as we go through that, a listening guy going to be of help to you. I want to ask, have you ever gone to a movie and had somebody talk in the middle of it? I think we've almost all had that experience. It's, it's usually pretty annoying. You're, you're focusing on what's happening and someone's talking about something they read on their phone or they're talking about something that has nothing to do with the picture and it can be very, very distracting. Well, occasionally you go and this happens and it can add a little extra something, a little extra charm, if you will. Years ago, I remember my wife and I, we were seeing one of the Avengers movies, which I know most people have probably seen those, and we're pretty big fans. We've seen them all multiple times. We sort of know how the universe works. We know who has which superpower. We know which glowy blue thing does what. We kind of know what the rules are. When we were seeing this movie, I think it was the second Avengers, in fact, I know it was the second Avengers, um, next to an older couple that, let's just say, they didn't quite know the rules as well, they found it a little bit off-putting, they, they weren't quite up on the nerdiness, they weren't quite willing to just to dive in, and they kind of were watching like, what is this, what's going on, this is, they just weren't quite tracking with it. And, and I remember that we, we reached a really high, dramatic moment, where if you've seen the movie, you're going to know what I'm talking about, but, but literally a bright, shiny, red robot man appears on screen, and apparently this was just too much for this woman. <laughs> this, this was the last straw, because she leans over to what I assume was her husband and whispers not so loudly, oh, this movie just keeps getting weirder and weirder. <laughs> and, and, and you laugh, and my wife and I, we laugh every time we think about it, which is pretty often. Um, but, but maybe you've had this experience, not just the movies, but maybe you've had that experience with the Bible. Maybe you've had that experience with this book of Daniel, because we've seen some strange things. We have seen some odd visions. We have seen miraculous deliverances. We have seen the writing appear on the wall without context, and nobody can read it. And believe it or not, as we turn this morning to Daniel 7, we have left behind the straightforward part of this book. We have left behind the things that show up in Veggie Tales. We are moving on to, for what many of us will be uncharted waters from a preaching standpoint. And you may be tempted, along with that woman in the theater, to say, this book just keeps getting weirder and weirder. But I urge you, do not let the admitted strangeness of this and the following chapters deter you. 2 Timothy 3.16, which says, all scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is useful for teaching. All Scripture is useful for rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness applies to Daniel chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 as well. God is speaking to us this morning from Daniel chapter 7, and we will see a great truth in this passage, namely that the greatest enemies are no match for our great God. If you would read with me Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 1 through verse 12. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. 
Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And then I looked as its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth and was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little horn, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. And as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. This is the word of God. Pray with me, please. Dear Father God, as we come this morning to a challenging text in a challenging book, Lord, we ask, Father, that you would give us grace and your spirit to see what are your promises in Christ this morning for us, to believe those promises and give us too, Lord, a fresh desire for your son so that we would be hearers and doers as well of this word, that we would desire him more for having spent time listening to him this morning. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. Well, before we dive into the text, I need to give us a brief introduction to what scholars call apocalyptic literature, which is the literary genre of the passage that we're about to study. Now, before you feel like you're back in high school English class and your eyes just roll back in your head, what we want to ask is, what are the rules of this particular kind of writing? What kind of writing is this? Because if we know that, we're going to be able to understand what the author is saying to us. Now, most of the first half of this book was written in the genre of historical narrative. It's what most of the Old Testament was written in. It's what Ruth was written in that we were reading before. You have historical characters. They are engaging in actions, dialogue, etc. We ha did have some apocalyptic material in chapters 1 through 6, especially Nebuchadnezzar's vision in chapter 2, but chapter 7 makes a shift. And almost all of what is ahead of us are apocalyptic end times 
prophecy and visions. And there are different rules here. Allow me to read what the ESV study Bible has to say about this genre. The last six chapters are a series of visions that employ highly symbolic images to portray vast stretches of political and spiritual history. The techniques of symbolic reality feature prominently in all of the dreams and visions, including those of the first six chapters. And in symbolic reality, the world that is entered consists largely of great symbols instead of literal characters and places. Now, what this is not saying is that these visions are made up or fake. But what this is saying is that the visions deal with real-world events on a massive scale using highly symbolic images. In other words, Daniel really did have a vision. He really did see four beasts in the vision of the night and write it down. But these four beasts aren't just four beasts, but symbolize political and spiritual forces that God uses as he orchestrates history for his glory and his people's salvation. And this means that in order for us this morning to understand what is being communicated, we need to understand the symbols. So if you are raring to dig into what each of these beasts is, what each of the individual ten horns is, I'm going to have to disappoint you because we are not going to get into that this week. Uh, The reason is that verses 1 through 8 are actually interpreted at the very end of the chapter for us in verses 15 through 28. And so we as your pastors had a difficult decision to make as we came to this passage. We could do the entire chapter as one sermon and just be here all day, which I wouldn't really mind that much. Um, or we could find some way to kind of go out of order a little bit. I, I know that's, that's scary, um, but what we practice here is expository preaching. That means as long as we are telling you what the author is saying, we are being faithful to the text, and if we occasionally go out of sequence, we have that freedom to do so. So what we're going to do is this morning we're going to unpack verses 9 through 12, Next week, DJ is going to unpack verses 13 to 14, and then in two weeks, Dave is going to look at the vision again in verses 1 through 8, and then the interpretation of the vision in verses 15 through 28. So we are by no means skipping verses 1 through 8. We are by no means denying the canonicity or the inspiration of verses 1 through 8. But we feel that in order for us to best teach you the meaning of this book, this passage, in the way that's going to be most helpful to you, it's best to, just this one time, go out of sequence and go off script a little bit. So, again, we're going to focus this morning on verses 9 through 12. And again, from these verses, we will see the truth that the greatest enemies are no match for our great God. And that is detailed for us in four specific truths from this passage about our great God. First, from verse 9, our God is present even when he seems absent. Verse 9 says, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the ancient of days took his seat. Now that phrase, as I looked, calls our attention to a shift not in scene, but a shift in perspective. The Scene has not changed. We're in the same place, but we're looking at things from a different angle. You might see this in the movies. Uh, In those aforementioned Avengers movies, they often will have big, huge letters when there's a scene change to say, you were in this place, and now you're in this place. But that is not what is happening here. There's no huge letters saying, you were on earth, and now you're in heaven. No. Daniel has been describing these terrifying beasts, presumably while he's on earth. 
And there's no indication that we have left the earth. It's the same scene, but we're getting new perspective. Well, how is it new? Daniel goes on to say that thrones were placed, a plurality of thrones. Well, well that, that should catch our attention. Why would there be more thrones than just one? God is the one who is about to sit down. We're, we're going to see that he's got an entourage with him, but they're never exactly described as, as sitting down, and they seem to be his attendants, these thousands and ten thousands that serve him. So it's probably put here for emphasis. There are, there are a multiplicity of thrones, but the only one sitting down is God because he's not just a king, but he is the king of kings and lord of lords and in particular reigns over these creatures that he is about to judge. We've seen in the past six chapters of Daniel that one king after another, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Darius, one king after another thinks they're God. And then the one true God puts them in their place. A few weeks ago when we read Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has this terrifying dream and then Daniel provides the dream and its interpretation and he gives this commentary. That the dream, Daniel chapter 4 verses 24 and 25, it is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the King that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven in seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. So this then is a continuation of that theme, that God is the one who is in control of all kings, all rulers, all nations. All these crazy beasts, these hostile nations and kings and powers from verses 1 through 8, God rules over all of them. Their thrones are put in his presence and in effect, he is the one who is sitting on all of them. Some of you this morning are anxious and weary because of who sits on various thrones in this world. Maybe it's a boss who runs you ragged. Maybe it's a political leader that you don't happen to agree with. Maybe it's the culture makers, the celebrities and thinkers that seem to exert so much influence on our day-to-day -day lives. These things might make you feel small helpless, worried about a future that you cannot control. I would encourage you this morning. Every throne in this life is under the throne of our God. Every ruler and power in this life ultimately answers to your God and my God. Remember that. Remember that this week, the next time you are tempted to be angry or anxious or weary because of who has power in this life. The world may be full of thrones and rulers, but they all answer to our great God. And it is our great God who is the focus of this section of Daniel's vision. He is referred to as the Ancient of Days, and we'll explain what that title means in a minute. But very clearly, it is God. It's not some other king. It's not some new beast or ruler. It is God who has shown up. And I said a moment ago that there has been a change here, not in scenery, but in perspective. And what that means is that while God is now appearing to Daniel's vision, God is not now appearing on the scene. God has been there the whole time. He's just now revealing himself to Daniel that he's always been there. And this is huge. Because as we'll see in a few weeks as we unpack the vision, there is scary stuff happening here. 
I, I don't want to steal Dave's thunder, but I got to give a little bit of context. Verse 2 says, four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, symbols of chaos and disorder and unrest. The world is churning and roiling, and, and who knows what's going to happen? But God is there. Then the four beasts show up. Verse 4 says that the first beast was like a lion, a deadly predator with eagle's wings, an unnatural hybrid. Whoever or whatever this thing is, is deadly, destructive, unnatural, and powerful, a threat to God's people. But God is there. Verse 5, a beast like a bear shows up with three ribs in its mouth, told to devour much flesh, even more explicitly dangerous and bloodthirsty but God is there. Verse six, a leopard with four wings and four heads, even more unnatural, able to conquer with lightning speed, but God was there. And then finally in verse seven, most frightening of all, a beast that cannot even be described, terrifying, dreadful, strong, iron teeth, chews up whatever it wants and stomps on what's left with its feet. Ten horns, horns being symbolic of violent power. This is a violent, powerful creature times ten. And then it gets another horn full of eyes that's talking and boasting and bragging, most likely blaspheming God and threatening his people. I'm really glad that Dave gets to explain what this guy is. <laughs> I've got some of my own ideas, and none of them are good. This beast is not a fun guy. He's terrifying. He's dangerous. He's a major threat to God's people. But God is there the whole time. Each beast comes up in turn, representing a greater and greater threat to God's people, turning up the fear one notch higher each time. And though not mentioned and presumably not even seen, God is there the whole time. Just as God has been there and will be there in your life if you are his redeemed child in Christ Jesus, no matter what you have been through, no matter what you are going through, no matter what you will go through, no matter how absent and silent he may seem at the time. There are few things more painful in the Christian life than the apparent absence and silence of God. We see this often in the Psalms. Psalm 83, verses 1 through 3 says, God, do not keep silent. Do not be deaf. God, do not be quiet. See how your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have acted arrogantly. They devise clever schemes against your people. They conspire against your treasured ones. You hear the angst in this psalm. You hear the tension and the unrest. It's almost accusatory. Don't be silent, God. Don't be deaf. Don't be quiet. Don't be derelict in your duties, God. Don't blow me off or let me down. We feel this. The circumstances are dire. God's enemies make an uproar. They engage in conspiracies against him and against his people, against all of them. But as agonizing as this psalm is, Consider that in God's apparent absence, the psalmist is still crying out to him because he is still there. And implicit in this is what Daniel sees in his vision, that our God is present even when he seems absent. We need to live in light of this. How do you react 
when God seems absent to you. If you're like me, you probably do your fair share of complaining to your spouse, to your friends, to your family members. But the Bible has no problem with us complaining, provided we complain to God instead of about God. When is the last time you engaged in some sanctified, prayerful complaining to God? When is the last time you cried out to God, why did you give me this job? Why did you cause me to marry this person? Why did you give me these kids? Why did I get into this school and not this school instead? What are you doing up there? And if that seems wrong to you, if that seems scandalous to you, let me push back on you. First, you have numerous examples in the Psalms of the psalmist complaining to God. And, and second, what does it say about you? If, if you will complain to your spouse about God, your spouse who is made of dust as you are, but you will not complain to the God for whom the nations are dust on the scales, the God who commands us to cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for us, the God who has been present through whatever he has allowed into your life and will be present and use it to make you more and more like his son. So I would encourage you the next time that you are going through something painful, something difficult, go to God, pray to God, and complain to him about it. Whine to God about what you are going through. Let your feelings hang out into your words and see in that moment if the Holy Spirit does not give you a sense of the presence of the God who has been with you the entire time. Because even in his apparent absence and silence, our God is with us. But God's presence is little more than a sentimental idea if he can't do anything about the problems in the world. And fortunately, this passage hits us with a second truth there in verses 9 and 10. That our God is more terrifying than our most terrifying enemies. Let me read those again for us. The Ancient of Days took his seat... His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was like fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. Daniel goes on to give his description of God. He refers to him as the ancient of days, and it could just refer to an old human man but it's clearly talking about much, much more here. It is a title that implies age, wisdom, dignity, veneration, and respect. And it likely also speaks to God's eternality and timelessness like we sang about in the first song this morning. We blossom and flourish like leaves on the tree. We wither and perish, but not changeth thee. I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole, but theologians have long recognized that the Bible presents God not just as very, very old, but actually eternal and outside of time. Time is something that he creates. Time is something that is under his dominion. As someone who just watched his oldest daughter turn four and who is about to turn 34 this week, I am painfully aware this month that I am not timeless. I am not eternal. Neither are any of you for that matter. But there is one who is this, our great God. Daniel goes on. 
He is described as having clothing white as snow, hair like pure wool. His hair, again, a reference to great age and veneration, but also to purity along with the color of his clothes. This is the God who Revelation 4.8 says has a constant 24-7 choir saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That is utterly set apart, utterly spotless, without stain or wrinkle, without sin or defilement. His clothing and his hair color speak to this quality about him. And then it goes on to describe his throne. It was fiery flames. Wow. Just, just pause and think about that. Daniel sees God, and God is sitting on literal fire. Uh, just, just think about how inspi- awe-inspiring that is, how awesome that is. I, I'm guessing this is not like a candle, nor even like a bonfire. Think back a few weeks ago when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the smelting furnace. Think about the pictures of the wildfires that are going out of control right now in California. I think that's what we're supposed to be thinking of. God is sitting on literal fire. It's awesome. Fire in the Old Testament can be a positive image, as when God shows up in a pillar of fire to protect and guide his people. But it can also be a terrifying and destructive image as when God shortly thereafter comes down on Mount Sinai in a pillar of fire and the people say, we don't want to go up there. Moses, you go up there instead. And God says, yes, that's that's the right response you should have. He is described as being a devouring fire. They mention wheels. The implication that being that this is not a, a static throne like we would imagine, like a chair that's bolted to the floor, but rather this is a chariot, a, a war transportation mechanism that a king would ride on. And it's not inappropriate given that God is clearly going into combat. And if the throne being fire isn't enough, he mentions that the wheels are fire too. You've seen pictures of ancient chariots with their spikes. You've seen Ben-Hur. That's nothing on God. He sees your chariot spikes and raises you his chariot made of literal fire and his wheels made of fire too. I think God wins. And this fire is not just for show. Verse 10 goes on to say that there is a stream of fire that's issuing and coming out from him. So not only is he enthroned on literal fire, but he has fire as his weapon of war and instrument of judgment, as we'll see momentarily. And God is not alone either. An ancient Near Eastern king's status was shown not just in his personal appearance and power, but in his retinue, his posse, if you will. Just like on the TV show Entourage, somebody who's a big deal has a lot of crowd around him, a lot of hangers on around him. God has an entourage and then some. A thousand thousands serve him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. Nothing like a math problem to interrupt the flow of scripture, right? But, but, But the point of these figures is not for us to sit down with a calculator, as us English majors have to do, and try to figure out, okay, exactly how many people, angels, whatever is this. We're given two formula back to back to emphasize there is a massive, massive number with God. He is a great king with a huge host with him. It's the heavenly host. 
It's God's army of angels. But the focus in this passage is not on their military might. They are here as, as courtiers. They are here to show God the respect and reverence and dignity that he deserves as the ancient of days, the creator of heaven and earth, the king of kings and lord of lords, the one who is preparing to judge these four beasts who have arisen before him. This is our God. He is eternal, timeless. He is wise aged, venerable, worthy of honor and respect. He is enthroned on literal fire. He is armed with fire. He is ready to ride out and make war and judgment on his enemies and his people's enemies. And he is accompanied by a massive army, yet one that need not pick up a weapon because of how powerful this God is. In short, he is terrifying. And at the risk of stealing Dave's thunder yet again, I want you to look at all the way down at verse 28 at the end of this chapter. When Daniel writes, here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Daniel has seen some crazy stuff before. He has seen a very, very similar vision to this previously when God revealed Nebuchadnezzar's dream to him back in chapter 2. He has prophesied about Nebuchadnezzar being driven out to live among animals and be forced to eat grain until he looks like an ox. But this vision of the Most High and what he is about to do to this beast alarm him so greatly that he turns pale. Our God is terrifying. Terrifying. And we're quick to point out that he is loving, which he is, that he is merciful, which he is, that he promises not to judge us, but to save us if we will put our faith in Christ Jesus, which he does. And we will even pull out that great C.S. Lewis quote from Mr. Beaver where he says, no, he is not safe, but he's good. And he is. But he is also terrifying. And even for those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus, even for those who have been saved by God's grace through faith, our God is terrifying. He is awe-inspiring. He is enthroned on literal fire. He has always existed and will always exist. He has an army the size of which we cannot even imagine. But when he draws his flaming sword to make war and judge, they don't have to pull a bowstring. Our God is terrifying. And because he is terrifying, you and I don't have to be afraid even of our most terrifying enemies. Jesus makes this contrast clear in Luke 12, verses 4 and 5. I tell you, friends, do not fear those who can kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Jesus is clear that if we do not fear the one who has authority over both body and soul, then we're going to fear everybody else instead. Those who merely have delegated authority from him. We can fear God or we can fear everyone and everything else. Why do we shy away from this truth about God? Well, there are a few reasons. I think we as preachers are always afraid to be labeled with that dreaded epitaph, fire and brimstone. 
We never want to be accused of scaring people into obedience or scaring people into heaven. And in most churches today, the focus is not on preaching what God's word says, but to preach what people want to hear, what they'll show up for. Everyone loves to be told that God loves them, but nobody wants to be told that God loves them so much that he would send his son to absorb the fiery sentence of wrath against him. The price of forgiveness is the one and only son of God. Nobody wants to be told that their sin is so grievous that the perfect spotless lamb of God had to die in order to make atonement for it. As the old Isaac Watts hymn goes, Blessed be the Lamb, my dearest Lord, who bought me with his blood and quenched his father's flaming sword in his own vital flood. We don't want to be told that we need salvation like that, that the only way that God's sentence of wrath against us could be quenched is if it was quenched in the blood of Jesus. We don't want to hear that. And apart from the Holy Spirit, we will not hear it. But we desperately need to. If you were here this morning and you would not consider yourself a follower of Christ, first of all, thank you so much for being here. But it is without any sort of pride that I tell you what you are hearing right now is something you will not hear in most churches today. That our God is holy. That our God is utterly without sin. And our God stands armed and ready to judge sin. He really does. He really is. This is not just something that Jonathan Edwards made up hundreds of years ago to put in a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's really here in the Bible. Our God hates sin. It is an affront to his glory and honor and position as the God and creator of all things. It is an insult to him who is the ancient of days. But though we will see this God judge this blasphemous beast in this passage, this God sent his son, Jesus Christ, so that he could take the judgment that you and I deserve. And so that anyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and repents of their sins won't face the everlasting judgment of God, but will be made part of his family and enjoy his everlasting favor and kindness and goodness in the new heavens and the new earth that he is promising to bring. If you are not a follower of Christ Jesus, let me run the risk of scaring you into repenting this morning by telling you that you do have something to fear. As surely as God's judgment falls on the beast in this passage, it will fall on you if you do not repent. If you'd like to talk about what that means, you can come grab me or Pastor Dave or Pastor DJ afterwards. We'd love to talk to you about that. If you are a Christ follower, let me ask you, are you fearing God or man this morning? Whose opinion carries more weight with you? When you're making a decision, do you stop and consider what your spouse, your friends, your parents, your boss, your coworkers might think? Or do you prayerfully consider the Lord's opinion on the matter? Fearing God means by implication that we cease to fear men. Let that weigh on your thoughts the next time you have a big decision to make. Or the next time you are facing judgment or ridicule for your faith. Seeing that our God is terrifying means that we can no longer fear even our most terrifying enemies. We can take comfort in the fact that not only is God more terrifying than our enemies, in every way imaginable, he is greater than our greatest enemies. We find this in verses 10 and 11. The court sat in judgment, 
and books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. Now we come to God's judgment on the beasts. And commentators have offered different opinions as to what these books are. Some see them as record of the beast's wrongdoing, a la Revelation 20. But it's not exactly clear what connection there is here. And, and it seems to me, and other commentators, that the beast is going to be judged based on its ongoing actions of speaking great things and making war and blaspheming God and his people. And other commentators see this book as, as record of royal court documents, records of policy decisions made by this king, according to which he will judge the offending party. And I think this is more likely because it contributes to the sense of gravity and awe and majesty in this scene. God is a great king. He is attended by his mighty revenue. The records of his kingly rule are opened up, and he stands ready to execute lawful judgment on this offender. And Daniel was finally able to pry his eyes away from God and look back to this beast. And it's still speaking great words, still boasting and blaspheming God, perhaps still speaking threats against God's holy people. But though the beast is speaking great things, someone greater than the beast is here. And it's proof of this, all of a sudden the beast is gone. I looked and the beast was killed. It's swift, it's sudden, it's almost anticlimactic. We're not even told explicitly who did the killing, even though it's presumably God, given the body is burned up by fire. This terrifying vision of the beasts, which climaxes in this fourth beast and its blasphemous horn arising, is resolved in sudden, brief, and complete execution by fire. This is a pay-per-view boxing match that you look forward to for a month, and you get it on HBO, and you invite all your coworkers over, and you've got your snacks all ready to go, and the champ knocks out the challenger with one right hook a half second into the bout, and it's over. No contest. This is the greatness of God. A series of impressive, violent, destructive regimes have arisen in the course of history, culminating in one greater and more terrifying than all others, and God doesn't let them have a possession. He wins the toss, and the very first play from scrimmage is a 75-yard touchdown pass, and there's no looking back. The route is on. The beast is gone. Our God is great, greater than all of his enemies, greater than the enemies of his people, there is no one over whom he lacks authority and jurisdiction to judge as well as to bless. And this can make us uncomfortable. As God's people, we're always afraid that we're going to look like Jonah. Jonah, of course, was sent to proclaim a message of repentance to Nineveh and didn't want to go because he didn't want them to repent. He wanted God to judge those people for their sins. And we don't want to be like that, certainly. But God's authority and right to judge are seen throughout Scripture as a sign of his greatness and his glory. Psalm 96, verse 9 through 13 reads as, as follows. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Equity. 
Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people with faithfulness. The Psalms set the judgment of God in a context of praise and rejoicing. Judgment is a prerogative of our God as the glorious king of heaven and earth. And we should praise him for that. We should praise him because he is not just one God among many, one king among many. No, he is the high king above all kings with authority to judge all rulers. And he shows his absolute greatness and his peerless supremacy in his acts of judgment. And in particular, he shows his glory and his greatness by judging rightly. Scripture does not ask us to take a rose-colored view of this world. It makes no bones that this world is, is flawed, it's fallen. It's a far cry from what God meant it to be. And from our perspective, it appears to be populated by rulers that leave a lot to be desired. Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, Hitler and Stalin and Mussolini, and anybody who has ever been blamed by a teacher for a fight they didn't start a boss for a deadline they couldn't have met, a parent for something they didn't do. You know the agony of living under an unjust judge. But praise be to our God because he is not like that. He judges the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. He is not like the corrupt judges of the world. He always judges according to his absolutely perfect character and his brutal and complete as the judgment on this violent, boastful horn is, we can rest assured that it is a just and perfect judgment, and we can praise our God for acting in this way. Let me ask you this morning, in your spheres of influence, however big or small, is this the way that you use authority? Is this the way that you judge Parents, do you judge and parent your children with righteousness like your great God? Husbands, do you lead your wives with faithfulness like your great God? If you are a boss, do you manage your employees like this? If you're single and you are leading yourself, are you leading yourself like our great God? Are you disciplining yourself day by day by God's Spirit so that you will more and more resemble Christ and not less? Wherever we find ourselves judging and leading, we need to resemble our great God. Our God judges rightly, and his power and authority to judge demonstrate that he is greater than all others, even the greatest of his people's enemies. But our God's rule and reign are not confined to dramatic moments of history only. He is not a deistic watchmaker who winds up the universe and then lets it run, only stepping in momentarily here and there to make sure that the cogs and springs continue running smoothly. No, far from it. For verse 12, and the fate of the remaining three beasts demonstrate that our God holds all of history in his hands. 
As I said before, the major purpose of the apocalyptic literature is to show that God is in control of history and that he will ultimately judge his enemies and vindicate his people. And verse 12 draws this out. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Now, clearly, there is a distinction being made here between the first three beasts and the fourth. And Dave's going to have a lot more to say in a few weeks about what that distinction is, but we can focus right now on what is here in verse 12. We see that the dominion is taken away from these three beasts. Again, we have seen time and time again in Daniel that it is God who raises up one king and lowers another. Jehoiakim, the last king of Israel, was conquered by Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar gives way to Belshazzar. Belshazzar will give way to Darius, and Darius will give way to Cyrus. Each and every rise and fall of each and every kingdom sits perfectly in the hand of God. But verse 12 goes on to say that their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So while their rising and falling are in God's hands, and while he decrees that one empire rise while another one falls, it's clear that this is not an act of ultimate, final, destructive judgment, as was the case with the fourth beast. In other words, God doesn't just execute and orchestrate the fate of nations in extraordinary cases, but every single beat of the great music of history is perfectly in time with the movement of his conductor's baton. God is every bit as in control of a peaceful transition from one good or decent ruler to another as he is over the overthrow of a ruler through blood and revolution by his oppressed people. An implication of this is that the three beasts, like empires and nations, seem to exercise authority with some legitimacy. Scripture is clear that all authority is ultimately derived from God. Paul says in Romans 13, verses 1 and 2, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And we, and we read these verses, and we all want to go to the bad rulers, right? We always want to ask, how can this bad dictator, how can this bloodthirsty man, how can, how can their authority be derived ultimately from God? But we need to consider that this is true of good rulers too. When, when you and I, along with unbelievers, find ourselves under the leadership of a good mayor, a good senator, a good governor, good cabinet officials, a good president, that is a good gift from God. And we should thank him for that. We should praise him for that. It's in keeping with his complete leadership and control over all of human affairs. Whether good leaders or bad, whether a transition occurs peacefully or in bloody revolution, God remains in absolute charge of history down to the barest, most minute detail. And this is made clear at the conclusion of verse 12. God permits these beasts, now stripped of their dominion, to live on for a season and a time. And depending on which commentator you read, or really where that commentator went to seminary, you're going to get a range of interpretations of this phrase. Suffice to say, it indicates that God does not simply let these beasts run free. They are on probation, if you will. 
It's possible that they're spared in order to serve God's people in the, in the, as they flourish in the wake of the judgment on their oppressor, the fourth beast with the horn. But whatever the reason, their lives are only prolonged at the good pleasure and purpose of God. He is the one who executed and judged the fourth beast by fire. He is fully capable of doing away with these three beasts as well. And if they live on, even for a set period of time, stripped of their dominions, it is because of the good pleasure and purpose of God. But what are these purposes? How can we say that history has a purpose, that God has a purpose in it, when it seems so senseless, seems so meandering, directionless, rife with oppression of one people by another? the rise and fall of leaders and and empires in ways that seems utterly senseless. How can we say that there's purpose in this? I want to illustrate this. One Sunday in late June in the early 1900s, a member of the royal family of a second-rate European power narrowly avoided being assassinated while on a political visit to an Eastern European state. And having suffered no harm, this royal went on with his wife to a planned event at City Hall, but later in the day made arrangements to leave the city purely as a precaution by an alternate route, just to make sure that nothing would happen. But as they sped away from the city down this unplanned alternate route, their car just happened to come to a stop mere feet away from one of the conspirators of that earlier failed assassination attempt. That man... Seizing the opportunity, stepped forward and fired two shots from about five feet away, fatally wounding that royal. That assassin was a Serbian nationalist named Gabrielo Princip, and he had just murdered the heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand. And many of you know that this assassination led to a series of alliances and ultimatums that resulted in the First World War. But historians can draw a direct link between that conflict and the Russian Communist Revolution in 1917, the stock market crash in 1929, the Great Depression, the rise of fascism in Germany and Italy in the 1930s, the Holocaust of the Jews in Germany, the invasion of Poland and the beginning of World War II, the development of the atomic bomb, the Cold War, the proxy wars in North Korea, Vietnam, Afghanistan, the communization of China, the nuclearization of North Korea and Iran, the rise of the Taliban, the Persian Gulf War, the 9-11 bombings, and the war on terror. All because one man in one Eastern European country fired a few bullets at a man whose car just happened to stop five feet away from him. And we look at this and we ask, how? How can that have purpose? How can history be going anywhere? How can it have any meaning whatsoever? In this, that just as God planned the course of 20th century history, just as he planned the rise and fall of nations in this text, he was orchestrating the plan that he had made with God the Son and God the Holy Spirit before the beginning of time. That God the Father would create the world through Son and Spirit, that he would create people in his image And that when given the choice, people would sin and bring his world into darkness and the edge of ruin. But that God the Father would pursue them. 
He would make promises. He would then call a man named Abraham and promise to bless the whole world through his offspring. And that family of Abraham would become a nation, the nation of Israel. And they would be oppressed in Egypt, but God would deliver them out of Egypt into a land prepared for them, the promised land. And though that people would sin and go astray there in the promised land and be carried into exile in Babylon where this vision happens, God has a plan through the machinations of leaders, through the working of history to return his people from exile back to the promised land. And then finally... Finally, finally, after centuries of preparation, he will send his one and only son, born of a woman, born of flesh, not to judge his people, but to take their sins on himself, absorb the fiery sentence of wrath on the cross. And he will be buried and rise again in victory and ascend to the right hand of the Father where he waits even now for just the right time to return and bring final judgment on Satan and sin and death and bring eternal life with him for all who believe. History be purposeless? Meaningless? No, my brothers and sisters, the long arc of history is bent towards exactly one moment, that moment when the clouds will roll back, that moment when the trumpet will resound, that moment when the Lord will descend, that moment when heaven comes to earth, when, as the great John Foreman writes, tide and tear and pain subside and laughter drinks them dry. This morning, do you see that all of history, all of history, your history, has meaning and purpose. That it's headed somewhere. It's headed from the death and resurrection of Christ and his ascension to his second coming. That's where all this is headed. That's where Daniel's vision of these four beasts, as obscure and strange as it seems to be, that is where his story, where your story and my story, where all of history is headed For Christ to come, first to suffer and die and to rise, and then to return again to rule and reign forever. What would your life look like this week if you had this perspective? Are you living this week, this month, this year with this perspective? If you were, how would you spend your money? What commitments would you make? What would you say no to? Who would you invest in? What relationships would you forge? Who would you make time to share the gospel with? Who would you forgive who has wronged you? As the chosen people of God, whose salvation is closer now than when we first believed, we need to be living each and every day conscious of the fact that our stories are ultimately tied up in his story and that it is going somewhere. Because God who is writing that story, has all of history in the palm of his hand. Resolve in this moment to live each moment of your life in light of that story. Let us pray. Great Father God, we are in awe of you, ancient of days, pure and holy, enthroned on literal fire, with wheels made of fire, who judges by fire, who no enemy can stand before, accompanied by tens of thousands and 10,000 times 10,000, and yet you need no army. You made all things. You were in charge of all of history. 
And anyone who draws breath for any moment does so at your good pleasure and for your purpose as Father. And we thank you, Lord, that the culmination of all of these things is Christ seated on his throne and all peoples from every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping him forever. Lord, this morning we are weary. We struggle to see how our story fits in your story, Father. Our lives can seem purposeless, meaningless. We can look back with regret on things we wish we had done or wish we had not done. But Lord, let us this week resolve that we will live every moment in light of the fact that history is going somewhere, that you are in control of it, Father. It is not meaningless and purposeless. It is all tied up in your plan to reconcile all things in Christ. Give us the grace for this, Lord, we pray. Form us this week, we pray, Lord, in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.